Swamiji wrote this me- the melody first to this, which is just really a beautiful melody. And then these rather silly words came to him. And he himself um, remarked that, that it's such a beautiful melody to have such silly words, but still that's as he put it how it came. And then he finally recorded this song on uh, his album called Some of My Favorites or Windows on the World. And it's, it's just an absolutely beautiful song when he sings it. And when I heard it, I wrote him a note and I said, Swamiji, the song really doesn't work because number one, you say it's a song of unrequited love and a hopeless desire to marry Jenny who's never going to marry you. But number one, Jenny would be a fool not to marry a man who could write her such a beautiful song. <laughs> and the melody is too lovely for it to be disappointment. So just sort of sing it with that happy spirit. Okay. Well, the subject of marriage is a subject that I used to give a lot of classes on. And then I got tired of it. <laughs> I, I'm not sure exactly why. I think partly because um, it's not a subject that comes very easily um, to, to people in our particular culture at this particular time. You know, until recent decades, people never even thought about having classes on marriage or really thinking about relationships in the way that we think about them now. Marriage was just something that people did. Everyone did it. And you just stayed married, and that was sort of basically your story. Sometimes, some of you have heard me tell the story about my mother-in-law, Esther. And she was, uh, she died a couple of years ago in her late 80s. So she was, uh, not of my generation. And I was visiting their home once. And she pulled out a scrapbook, and we were looking at um, her childhood in Columbus, Ohio, and various things. And there was a picture of a very elegant young woman, not Esther herself, standing in what was clearly a professional posed picture next to a piano. And it, it looked like some sort of a publicity photo. And Esther, who was born in Columbus, Ohio, and lived all her life in Columbus, Ohio, until they retired to Florida, you know, at the age of about 70 or so, um, pointed to the picture and told me the name of the woman who was Amelia or something like that. And she, she, Esther just kind of looks me right in the eye and said, Amelia went to New York by herself to study the piano. <laughs> and it was just, I mean, I was for a few moments I had no idea that something momentous had been spoken to me. <laughs> but I, I gradually just kind of picked up that I needed to be sufficiently awestruck at what Amelia had done. And in that kind of a context, um, a conversation like we're having now hardly makes any sense at all. Even though uh, it's not that people were blissfully happy, it's just that, that, that life was defined so much more in terms of the context in which you lived it, whether it was your career or your birth family or the hometown where you grew up, and young girls, generally speaking, and young men got married, had families. It just was never asked. I remember Barbara Bush um, was being interviewed, you know, uh, George Bush Sr.'s wife. And the question was asked, or one of her children asked her, uh, you know, when you got married, um, when did you decide to have children? And she sort of looked at her daughter and said, in my generation, you didn't decide to have children. You just had children. I mean, what a question. It was a question that never entered our minds. It was just what we did. It was the way life worked. Now, it's important to understand some historical perspective on this and even to put 
the book that Swamiji has written into some perspective in this way. We are in a profound period of transition. Um, the masters in the tradition of India describe this as a, as a shift of ages on this planet, that this planet goes through a sequence of progressively higher ages and then a, a series of declining ages, and then the whole cycle goes over again. Now, this doesn't happen quickly. This takes 26,000 years. It's called the Yugas. If I had a blackboard, I'd write on it. But those of you who've read Autobiography of a Yogi, and many of you have heard of this cycle. Well, we're right in a transition period. About, about 500 AD, um, human culture hit its lowest point. This is just a planetary cycle based on actually astronomical conditions having to do with the position of Earth in relationship to the center point of the galaxy in which we move, the system in which we move. Okay? But in, in, at 500 AD, we hit the bottom of the age of, of Kali Yuga, it's called, in the dark age of materialism. And it's not materialism exactly in the sense that we see here where people have so much excessive wealth, but materialism in the sense where form and matter were perceived to be reality. And from 500 AD, we started sort of coming out of the darkest point of that, but still very much in it, until um, 1799, 1699. And then we began a transition period, which really kicked in, in at the beginning of the 20th century and is really happening now, where we are moving <coughs> as a planet from an understanding of reality as being fixed and unmovable to an appreciation of the fact that life and even this whole world that we live in is just a field of energy. It's the age of, we've gone from the age of matter into the age of energy. Now, we're just beginning the age of energy. And, I mean, look around. If anything really defines, in an external sense, the world we're living in now, it would be energy. I mean, just a hundred years ago, everything was done by brute force, you, by, by uh, uh, physical movement, by horses, by pulling and pushing. I mean, that's just the way it was done. Now, we have all these refined forms of energy in which uh, things can just be moved so quickly. I was in an office in San Jose, and we needed a paper that was in Palo Alto, and you know, we just phoned up, and boom, the paper just appears. I mean, I know it doesn't actually go into the fax machine and through the little wires all the way through, <laughs> but nonetheless, somebody just put it in, and then it came out. And all day long today, because I was involved in very complicated projects, we were on cell phones and email and fax machines and sort of driving around, talking to people all over the place and just moving like this, making all this stuff happen. I mean, totally unthinkable. Even just in my little tiny life, even my tiny life since I've been a grown-up, I lived at Ananda Village starting in 1970. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have telephones. We got one, we had one telephone on the 900 acres that we lived on. You know, and if you had to talk, we didn't have cars, a lot of us either. So if you wanted to talk to someone, you had to walk over to their house. You know, <laughs> it was a very different pace than the life I live today. Well, pace is one thing, but the other reality about it is when life is, when, when you perceive reality as fixed, it leads to perceiving ourselves as fixed. It also leads to perceiving our, ourselves not so much in terms of our consciousness and how we flow, but about what we do. And so just even our parents' generation or two generations ago, 
There's just this simple fact that I am what I do. And the, there was a, a great order to society. I'm not talking about happiness. I'm not talking about hypocrisy. I'm just talking about order. You know, I remember the first time I met somebody whose parents had been divorced. Maybe it was the circles that I lived in, but still it was just a shocking thing to realize that they hadn't. And very interestingly, when my brother got divorced, my uncle got divorced. It was sort of like once the once it had been broken by the younger generation, the thought form could enter the family and, and all sorts of things could move. And so we are now in this transition between matter and energy, and the transition between yugas is always very chaotic because the old ways don't work and the new, new ways are not yet clear. So we're sort of, we were born into one context and we have a whole orientation that way. We can't make it happen now, but we don't quite know where we're going yet. And so what you look around in all situations, you see this great sort of shifting. And I don't think it's anywhere, you know, just more dramatically expressed than in the changes in relationships among people, in the definitions of families, in the way children are being brought into the world and raised. Now, this is bad news if you have the type of temperament that likes everything to just like get in its place and stay there. And this is bad news from, from the point of view of enjoying the, the security that a stable external world can give you. I mean, it's, it's very pleasant to know that your job will always be there, that you'll always have your home, that, uh, you know, your family is going to stay together, that your children are going to build homes right near where you're living. You know, just the kind of picture that Esther Praver was able to enjoy. You know, she was born in Columbus, Ohio, and there they are. Her daughter did move to California, and it was just exceedingly traumatic, you know, because it just wasn't part of the plan. It was the beginning of the disintegrating of the plan. And, of course, all her children actually moved, but that wasn't in the in the thought form. It was not supposed to happen that way. And it was the beginning of the end, of course. Now, this is very good news if you happen to be the kind of person or, or want to become the kind of person that much prefers to deal with things as they're really being experienced and are less concerned about the form of things or less reliant upon the form of things. And it really doesn't matter whether it's good news or bad news, folks. It's what we got, right? All of our hopes of this orderly little universe have just been shot to heck by the changing of the guard here. So the best thing for us to do, the most practical thing for us to do, is to ask ourselves, how can we make it work for us? instead of always just feeling sort of at a loss and at sea. We are at sea. The whole culture is at sea. One of the characteristics between yugas is this essentially the disintegration of moral standards. Um, every so often, one of us will make the mistake of recommending to Swami Kriyamananda a movie we have seen that we think is good. You generally only do that once, and then you don't do it for about 15 or 20 years, and then <laughs> something happens, and you think one is really good, and you're so excited, and you offer it to him again, and you may have the misfortune to watch it with him. <laughs> and there was one movie that I saw that I thought was really funny. It was All of Me by with Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. I thought it was a great movie. And this was like the second movie I've recommended in about two decades. And, and I happened to be in the CC with Swamiji, and we started watching it. And, of course, his consciousness is very refined. And that movie is really gross. I mean, it's just full of really gross images when you really look at it. I, had, I hadn't even noticed. You know, I just didn't even notice. 
how much of it was sexual and not and and not wholesome sexuality and just strangeness, strange, strange thing. And afterwards, I said to Swamiji, you know, it's not really that we're not refined people or that he lives on some plane that we don't, but we've grown up in a culture where gross is measured by a really different standard, you know. <laughs> so if it's just only like like moderately gross, you think it's clean because you don't even remember. You just don't even remember. But but all of those images um, of uh, disrespectful, unrefined sexuality and unrefined relationships between people and selfish relationships and incredibly superficial relationships where people are just um, connecting on the on the most ridiculous grounds. I re- recall uh, reading a book by um, the woman who wrote. Uh, Raising Ophelia, I, her name escapes me at the moment, but she's a very well-known psychologist and a wonderful woman who, who works with adolescent girls primarily. And she talked about going to a movie with an adolescent girl, and she naively saw some movie name and thought that it would be a nice thing to share with her niece or something like that. So she's sitting there watching, and in the first like eight minutes, the heroine has sex with a complete stranger in a cornfield. And so... This psychologist is like trying to have a conversation. I think she's showing very poor judgment here. What do you think? You know? <laughs> Just like, and of course the teenager is totally unfazed. But but think of the picture. Again, it's just like, well, this is this is natural life. And really, when you get a little distance from it, this is not natural life. This is chaos between yugas, which it could be worse. You know. It's it's also just a great thing when all standards come to pieces. Because then you get to discover who and what you really are. You know, otherwise you can live a whole life and never examine anything. It's just always there. You move from slot to slot. Everything stays in place and the walls are always there and you just kind of lean up against them and you go through and then you're dead. This happens to a lot of people, right? Not many of us anymore, but still it can happen. But when all the walls are down, and really any option is open to you, and even more when you're being assaulted with just endless, um, absurd choices that are presented you in the, to you in the guise of wisdom, it really is a, is a marvelous opportunity to find out on a level that nothing can ever disrupt after that what is true, really true, not because I was told, not because I'm afraid, not because I think I'll go to hell, but because I really in myself know it. And so that's the golden opportunity we're given right now. But of course such times are also difficult because one of the great um, tragedies of life is that we're kind of stupid and we learn primarily after we suffer. You know, Yogananda um, said that he has an argument with Divine Mother why must you teach your children through suffering? He says his divine mother has not really given him a satisfactory answer. That's how he puts it. And I sort of feel that if Yogananda can object, we can object. Uh, but nonetheless, that doesn't change the simple facts, which is that, especially in the area of relationships, which is why when I started I said I abandoned the subject for a while. Um, you know, pain is like right in there. And so we have to start our, our enterprise of uh, marriage and relationships um, 
redefining it from some point of view that, that will work for us in the present context. You know, we can't, it's not about society anymore. It's not about having children. It's not about security for women. It's not about men having a little helper to sort of entertain the boss and keep the home. Um, I don't object to any of those things. I'm far more conservative politically and traditionally, traditional socially than I usually let on because uh, it's not what people expect from me. So I will also speak in favor of a lot of things that people are, are, are casting aside now. We're doing a lot of um, rejecting just out of habit at this point. But nonetheless, the models just don't work. And of course, it blew apart first. It has been blown apart first by women. And I, I don't blame women at all in any respect. I think women have been the instrument of divine consciousness. One of the characteristics of the material Kali Yuga age is that it becomes very masculine in its values. And it's not really anybody's fault. It's not human beings who create reality. It's divine consciousness working through human consciousness. And slowly by slowly, the evolutionary changes in a societal sense take place. History is, in, human beings are the instruments of history, and they seem to cause it, but the force is greater than we are. So we're in this transition between yugas. One of the transitions that's happening is a sort of a new understanding of the feminine-masculine balance, which is very important. And women, uh, females, sort of uh, became the instrument of catching the wave first because the world was disbalanced toward masculine values, um, too thing-oriented, too sort of square in its orientation, too achievement-oriented. And so there was this great sort of reaction among the feminine that feminine consciousness needs to be more greatly appreciated. Now, of course, what's happened is that feminine a lot of feminine consciousness has tried to be male, which is kind of missing the point. But nonetheless, women asserting themselves and invading what used to be traditional male territory have begun slowly by slowly to, to create great shifts in the way our society functions. At the same time, however, once you disrupt that sort of uh, essential male-female flow of energy, it, it's not easy to just replace it with something else. You can't just create something else. So we're just in a time of great confusion when, again, we get to reinvent everything. I remember a man in his 60s uh, was just complaining. He took a seminar. He came and took a seminar, and he was talking about how, um, let's see, how did it go? It went something like it worked. He'd really come under, fi under fire from the women who worked for him because he was just too much of a chauvinist. So he worked really hard, you know, to be just more egalitarian when he related to women. And then he started a relationship, and she got real upset with him because he was such a wimp. <laughs> and he just sort of just didn't know where to go. He sort of was like desperately appealing to me for some kind of an answer. But we are in this state of confusion, and we even ask the question, which is a very real question to ask, what is even the point? of marriage. You know, relationships we can understand, but what, what is the real thing that we're trying to do here? So the first question, you know, that we ask is just simply that, which is what is marriage? Why, what is it for? Now, the other aspect that we have to keep profoundly in mind whenever we think about marriage, and I can't emphasize this in, in human love in general, romantic love, is that we live now in a culture that is virtually devoid of, of real role models. 
I had the uh, somewhat disconcerting experience to have a young woman say to me, she was, you know, in her late 20s when she spoke to me this way, she said in her entire life until she met my husband and I, she had never seen a marriage that made her think that marriage was worth doing. Now, I think, and she didn't have a particularly awful life. And, of course, sometimes young people can be um, not always totally perceptive of what they may be looking at, but even to even have such a thought. Um, and so for all of us, especially if we grow up not in extended families but just in small nuclear units, often without much family around us um, or, or stable friends or anything like that, you can grow up with hardly knowing any adults who are married except perhaps your own parents. <laughs> and maybe one or two other relatives through that. So we have very, very limited role models. We don't live in communities, for the most part, where we get to know everybody. The community that I've lived in of Ananda for these last 30 years is, is a unique, uniquely stable atmosphere in which the children of, of our families, many of them, have grown up surrounded by all these adults in a very old-fashioned sort of way. But that's very uncommon. And yet, because it's sort of one of the challenges of our age to figure out this question of romantic love, there is a tremendous focus in our culture on romantic love. And, but, but the focus comes to us through various mediums which are not natural life. It's not the focus that comes from knowing your grandparents who've been together for 60 years, you know, and your parents who've been together for 30 years, and you know, just watching your sister marry and then grow up and raise her children. It's, it's come to us through the books that we read, the music that we listen to, the movies that we watch, right? Now, almost all of those, and many of you have heard me say this, but it has to be said again, the characteristic they all share is that they're all fiction and fantasy, right? I mean, that doesn't mean that art can't be a true representation of the truth of human feeling. But a great deal of what we're surrounded with is not art in any uh, superconscious sense. It's more like it's subconscious impressions. It's people's just sort of instinctive impression or, or fantasy idea of what ought to be. And yet, you know, you go to a wedding and people will choose these popular songs to sing. I remember I was asked to do a wedding for the sister of a friend of mine, people who are not associated with our spiritual path. And... Um, he stood up and sang. He, um, he was a musician, and he had some favorite... I'm very out of touch with popular music, but he had some favorite wedding song that he sang. And, I mean, on one level, it was nice. He stood there, and he looked into her eyes, and he sang this song. But the vibration of the song was just so much of, oh, you're so wonderful, and I'm so lucky to have you, and you are so lucky to have me, and we're so lucky to have each other because you're so great, and now I'm so great because you're so great. You know, it's just, it just was like you could just watch them. They were just like spinning this cocoon around themselves, you know, and not surprisingly, the marriage didn't last, you know. But it was nobody, nobody standing there but me even, you know, reacted to it, and I did my best not to, because after all, I was the minister, I needed to, like, be in the story, and so I, I'm very good at just being in the story, and I was in the story, and we just played it out, because I can go there as much as anyone else can, but I'm also enough of a realist to say there is something really exquisite that we can share with each other, and I don't just mean romantic love, I mean 
profound friendship and true selfless caring. It doesn't have to be just this male-female idea. I mean, true selfless love is thrilling. But it's not a reality that can be imposed upon our consciousness. And that's the difficulty that, that has happened because there's so much fantasy looking at marriage. There's this thought that once I step inside of it, somehow all the rules of human life become different. That's why he says that people think that it's some like it's a thing in itself. And oftentimes when people reach the point in their marriage where it no longer is new enough to distract them from the fact that life still goes on, they think that there's something wrong with the marriage. You know? But in fact, there, there's no, there's absolutely nothing that can ever happen to you that can actually change your personal responsibility for your own happiness. And, and any thought that you have about anything that, that I'll meet this person or we'll get this circumstance or he'll be nicer to me or she'll change or whatever it is that will somehow make it easier for you to be happy in some sense of your not having to absolutely commit your own will to your own happiness, sooner or later will be some painful realization. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not really cynical. I've been married to David almost 20 years now. We have a, we have a wonderful life together. But that life is exactly proportionally wonderful to the extent to which each one of us have recognized that we don't make each other happy. We become happy, and then we love being together. Do you see the difference? Okay, now, that's what happens when all the forms blow to pieces, is that you're just left, we're just left with our own consciousness. And uh, we have this compelling inner need, this insatiable hunger for contact with one another, for love, for, for an experience of perfect love, for an experience of joy, for an experience of wisdom. So in that sense, the romantic idea of this uh, quest, this life quest for this individual with whom you can have this great adventure, there is a truth in it. But the truth is what is possible for our own consciousness through that. Do you see what I mean? It's like when we engage in whatever form God has given us, then wonderful things can happen to us. It's just a, a, a pathway. Everything is a pathway. That's why Swami calls it marriage, a weight of self-realization. Because everything has its technique. You know, when you're raising children, when you're teaching school, when you're a musician, when you're trying to have a, a close friendship with someone, there are principles that work and there are principles that don't work. Now, sometimes, I, I, by my nature, I'm not that romantic a person in this sense. I, I, I am not a person who prefers a misty view to a clear view. And sometimes we prefer, people think that it's not romantic to have a really clear view of things. I find it much more romantic to have a clear view of things because I suffer less. I don't find suffering to be very romantic, right? And sometimes we, we are not willing to look clearly at things in the name of wanting to maintain a romantic reality. And we hide our heads in the sand, which just doesn't work for us. Because one of the things that our, our close associations with other people force upon us is self-understanding. You know, that's the worst of it. I had this woman friend 
who was, if there was one word to describe her, that word would be moody. You know, she was just like, you never knew from night to morning what she would be. She got married in a short-lived marriage, and after it had fallen to pieces, she said to me sort of like this. She says, I know this is going to sound funny, but until I got married, I didn't know I was moody. (laughs) It's like it was just her as far as she was concerned. Life just I mean, it wasn't until somebody was looking her in the face all the time that she had to sort of measure herself against something, right? So these experience that we have of the opportunity to come together is a, a wonderful teacher because we get to find out more and more of, of, of what stuff we are made. Um, now that, to me, is much more exciting uh, than the thought that we get to put our heads in the sand and not have to try very hard for the rest of our lives. But, of course, it just depends on what you think of as a good time, right? <laughs> but one of the things that's happening to us in our culture right now is that we're just not able to get away with it, you know? You just, we just sort of try to get away with it, but it, there's not enough structure to get away with it. Whatever we really are inside ourselves is just gets exposed. Uh, things just don't hold together. So we can take our relationships also in that, in that same way and just see it, that this is an opportunity for me to perfect my energy, perfect my everyday expression, perfect my very definition of reality. Who am I? What are the people around me? You know, do I look at this person that I'm living with, that I love, as some sort of fixed entity who, who's not allowed to change or has to be the form that I want or who owes me certain understandings. I just, I I came to a point after David and I had been married about a decade um, where I began to appreciate the fact that I had really allowed myself to believe um, that the things he did really defined whether or not I could be happy. Does that make sense? You know, that I would just find myself so much of the time well, David said it perfectly to me. I've shared this with many of you, but it's such a perfect story. David doesn't talk nearly as much as I do. He sort of stores it up and then encapsulates it like that. So after five or six years, he said, uh, <laughs> he said, you know, everything is really just fine, and then you get upset. Now, of course, every woman in this room, I'm sure, is going to feel just like I felt. What do you mean everything is fine? I'm upset. You know, I mean, that seemed like such an obvious answer, didn't it? But he has a way of just like saying it that doesn't allow me to just do that. Also, there's too much magnetism. It's like something real has been said to me. So after I went like this for a while and tried to just beat it down, and it just sat in the room and wouldn't go away, I really sort of stood back and tried to think about what what that really meant. And I came to just a really very interesting revelation uh, on several levels, and there's many ways to describe this, but this is an important one. One is that um, he would just function. You know, men are are a little bit different than women in that respect. I've joked with him over the years. I said, you know, because he and I not only live together, of course, but we also work together. And I sort of, as, as women can do, I keep many realities simultaneously. Like, I never forget that we're married. I never, ever forget that. I never forget that he's my sweetheart, you know, and that we love each other and we have all this little sort of sweet stuff going on. And he, he knows that too. 
but sometimes we're just co-workers. <laughs> and it's just the task at hand, right? Now, even if it's the task at hand, because I can get in there like that with the, with the best of them, I never forget, you know, they were all so sweethearts. So I keep two things going at the same time, and he only keeps one. <laughs> but he's not being a mean to me, you know? He's not even being insensitive to me. He's just, for heaven's sakes, being himself. You know, he's just being himself, and everything is fine, and then I get upset. Do you see what I mean? Because he just does what he does. It doesn't have any charge on it. It doesn't have any direction at me. It's just that I am sitting there saying, be different so that I can be happy, right? Be different so that I can be happy. And everything is fine, and then I get upset. So I started playing a very different game. I just started, when that impulse would come, and he would just do something. I don't mean something mean or even thoughtless, just perfectly normal, given the person that he is. And I would begin to go through the whole cycle of, you know, when you do that, I feel this way, and therefore, because you've done that, I have to feel this way. And if you would only understand how I feel, then you would be different. And it's very tiring. <laughs> it's very tiring. It's very tiring no matter which side of that equation you're on. And, you know, and I hate it when he does it to me. But I casually do it to him just sort of constantly. It's just it's a strange reality, which is if you were just a little different. When I started becoming conscious of this, you know how the universe teaches you everything? I had a whole bunch of couples, mostly women, I had a bunch of women, coming to talk to me about their relationships, just like sort of all at the same time when this thought was becoming my big understanding. And they would all talk to me in every case. This is like three or four women in a row. In every case, I mean, I knew the marriage. And, you know, they had a, a very suitable partner, you know, just an, like... An ordinary average, you know, like 75% of what you want partner. That's what everybody gets. (laughs) One woman, one man that I know, fell in love with this wonderful woman, and um, she was very feisty. And they they were, you know, she she was very moody and she was very feisty. They've worked it out beautifully now, but they had some rocky years at the beginning. And he finally said, look, he said, he put, put it to her like this. He said, I think that you're really in love with me about 75% of the time. That's enough. <laughs> no, he just calculated it and figured that that was enough. He could deal with that. And he just, you know, ignored the other 25% and go with the 75%. So he asked her to marry him. <laughs> but, but I would have these women come to me, and they would um, describe how their marriages were almost okay. You know, they weren't really terrible. They were just almost okay. And the only thing was that was wrong was just this little bit, you know, just like if he just did this little thing. And it all sounded so reasonable. And I had to have said a few years earlier, I would have believed it was reasonable. But I began to, to see a very interesting thing, which I will also speak about from the male point of view, which was just that what these women were asking was that their husbands become women. because the gap was just about the difference between a man and a woman because even though we talk about how different we are we're really a great deal the same and we're all the same species and we're all you know we all divine souls and we've we've got male and female in us but women have a certain orientation and most men i mean i'm being stereotypical but nonetheless most men have a slightly different one because when you were up there in the great astral world and you looked at a list of what you wanted to learn this life, we generally picked a body that would orient us toward what we're trying to learn. 
So if we've had lots of lifetimes of just being over-emotional and over-concerned about all the little things and just sort of always obsessing about the tiny stuff, we might become a man instead, you know, who just can kind of look out on the horizon and not just ignore it, you know. (laughs) Men are represented by the sun. Every morning, the sun comes up, it hangs around for a while, it goes down. (laughs) And very, very slowly, you know, it makes shift. Women are represented by the moon. Wax wave, wax wave, wax wave. You know? Isn't that true? Just every little nuance. Oh, I'm a quarter of an inch bigger today. You know, I'm a quarter of an inch smaller. Like this. And the men are just slowly coming up and going down. You know? And that's all, that's all that's happening. And everything is fine until somebody gets upset. Really. Because almost always nothing is at stake except the thought that's gotten in our head that when you behave that way, I don't feel happy anymore. And when I don't feel happy anymore, we have this tremendous impulse to push on someone until they make you happy. Because it really feels like that person is making you miserable because there you were, then they did something, and now you feel awful. You know? So it's like, it's like hard to figure out that they didn't actually do anything to you. You can go on for many years that you think that they did. And now I'm not counseling that you never talk to each other, that you never express yourself. I mean, everything has to be balanced. But most people in our culture are not having a problem expressing themselves right now. You know, there's just this great belief that we have to tell people what we want. And we just keep telling everybody what we want, and then we keep getting divorced and finding new people to tell what we want. (laughs) You know? Because there's only so much you can do. There's a certain point in relationships that I have come to call the funk point. And it's, I, I think it has, it might be seven years, it might be that sort of myth of seven years, sometimes it comes sooner, that you're just like, you're, you've gotten together, you're living together, you've set up a home, you bought furniture, maybe you had a baby, I mean, you just do all sorts of things that you do. And it's still very new, it's all very exciting. And then it kind of begins to get more like ordinary. And then one day, you just kind of look at each other, and you realize you've gone all the way down to ordinary life. And you know, and you kind of go funk. <laughs> and then you actually just realize what you've got. You know? And, and you just, there you are. I remember I went to, my husband has a beautiful sense of aesthetics, and he, he just, for many years, I didn't even know what he was asking of me. I finally, then I went, I visited somebody's home, and I saw this woman had made a beautiful home. And I, and I just realized, oh, that's what he was trying to say to me all this time. You know, I mean, I just didn't even know what it was. It was so not part of my nature. And I just remember saying to him, well, I wish you'd gotten a wife like that, but you didn't, you know? <laughs> I just don't know what we're going to do now. <laughs> this is it. You know, it was thunk. There it is. <laughs> Swamiji once quoted some joke he'd read somewhere that the great problem in relationships is that... Um, the man always thinks she isn't going to change, and she does. And the woman always thinks he is going to change, and he doesn't. <laughs> the, the other one that I adore was out of Reader's Digest. This woman was, she and her husband, you know, they had this long-running thing because he was very exact about everything he did, very perfectionist, and she was very casual, and he used to criticize her constantly. And they were wallpapering a room together, and he sort of criticized what she had done. He said, your trouble with you is you're just not a perfectionist. And she said, yes, darling, I'm not a perfectionist. 
that's why I was able to marry you. <laughs> and you are a perfectionist, and that's why you married me. <laughs> When it's somebody else's marriage, it's very funny, isn't it? <laughs> but when it's yours, it, it, somehow we lose our sense of humor. And we lose our sense of humor because of the delusion that something makes us happy. And really, all that we have to understand, and this is again where Swami just writes it so simply, nothing happens when you get married, except that you have a new context for working out the dilemmas of your own consciousness. You know? We have had so many incarnations. And, you know, we're men, women, we're old, young, we're large, small, we're just all these different things. And all the time we're just setting up circumstances in which we can discover the ways in which we're not yet complete within ourselves. But we're not learning it so that we can finally paste together the right combination and be complete because I've got you pasted next to me. It's that we get to, get to reflect and that's why, generally speaking, relations traditionally have been between males and females, because really all of us are completely androgynous. Our soul has no gender at all. And, and masculine qualities and feminine qualities are equally available to all of us, whatever gender body we start with. But it, it's often a very beneficial thing to be in close relationship with the complementary form. But the point, of course, is in order to, to observe those qualities, understand them, and, and to draw them into ourselves. I remember, you know, um, there was a point when, when David and I were, we were traveling together in a motorhome um, for a number of months, which is, is great, was great fun for us. We were on a lecture tour. And, uh, you know, when you first get to know someone, everything about them is charming. And uh, especially, especially, you know, a man can be very charmed by all the sort of uniquely feminine things that his new beloved does. And I'm a bit of an airhead at times. And I also have this, like, very, I can't make decisions until I feel it right. <coughs> and David is very efficient. He's also extremely intuitive. But, you know, he can be intuitive on call. I can only be intuitive when the mood strikes. <laughs> you know? So he'll know that it's time to be intuitive and make the decision, and I won't be ready. Right? <laughs> And so I recall we were in the motorhome together, and I don't even remember what it was, but something needed to be decided. And it really had to be decided then. It was the moment. But I wasn't ready. And so I was tuning in, you know, or I, whatever I was doing. I'm making fun of myself because I'm not that dopey. But I was just, you know, spacing around, and he was trying to pin me down. And I could just see this slight irritation, you know, beginning to go, come over him like this. And then very cheekily I said, when you first met me, you thought this was charming. <laughs> and of course he did, because that was before the thunk point, you know. And you're just still sort of floating around before you really just recognize this is what you've got. But there's no reason why when you really see what you've got, you have to then feel distressed, because the reason it distresses us is because suddenly... It's telling us, I'm going to have to adjust to this, you know. This is not like, it's not like this person is going to give me all this stuff I thought they were going to give me. They're going to ask that I change in order to relate to this. And there's just this ridiculous, but nonetheless true <coughs> thought within us that somehow effort is, is, is dangerous, 
you know, that somehow it's hard to do these things. We have this habit in our mind that it's hard. But nothing will fulfill us to the extent that that commitment to truth and self-expansion will. And when we enter into a relationship, whether whatever the context is at all, we really have to understand that the reason I've entered into this is because I want to be more than I am. You know, that's that's what the soul's longing is. We make these unions, but then Swami, you know, talks in this book about how sometimes instead of accepting the marriage relationship as an opportunity to, opportunity to expand, we take it as an opportunity to sort of circle the wagons. Yogananda used to um, remark mockingly about how you know, so much of the American family was us four and no more, was how he would say it. I, I myself went through a very interesting cycle. Of course, it wasn't my destiny to be the kind of householder that I thought I was going to be. When I was a young girl and through my teens, I had very little capacity to take it would not be um, corrupted by the culture around it was human love and children, you know, motherhood, that whole picture. So I had this thought in my mind, I've never had a child, but I just had this thought in my mind that I would be this, you know, great mother. Because it seemed that would be worth doing, and I'm sure that I've been a mother many times, and so it was a very natural thought. I remember in this Jyotish and Devi, who are ministers at Ananda Village and the spiritual directors there, um, they have one child, he's now about 22, And they have a very close relationship, Jyotish and Davy, and a very humorous one. Humor plays a big part of it. And Davy was giving birth at home to their son. And she was more progressed in the birth process than they knew, and she was in the transition period. And they, the, the midwife, I'm not even sure if the midwife was there, but they just weren't quite up to speed with what was happening. She began to get very anxious, as can happen. And Jyotish was trying to comfort her and in his way, wonderful way you know, just make her feel more secure. And so he tried to help her in the new in the way that would work. He said, Davy, he said, I know this is the first child you've had now, but you've probably given birth to enough babies to fill the whole city of Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you know, if he'd said Paris or Rishikesh or something like that, it might have, you know, just taken her off. And, but instead he said Sacramento. She suddenly had a picture of Denny's. <laughs> and she saw all her babies going in and out of Denny's, you know. But it did exactly what it needed to do because she had, was becoming very contracted and just frightened. And all of a sudden it just, like, she just stepped back from it. And, and the cycle changed and then the birth progressed extremely, relatively speaking, easily for her. But, you know, that's the whole issue, and Swami talks a lot about it. It's the question of whether we contract in the face of what comes to us or whether we expand. And that relates directly within the relationship, in any relationship. When people come to us, do we contract in the thought that we'll be more protected if we can keep our walls up? Or do we recognize that everything that happens to us is an opportunity to have new experiences, to have new understandings, to show more courage, to be a, a, a greater instrument. And so that expansion, contraction, or, or even if we open to you or to you, but nobody else. And that's this sort of um, what we call too personal a sense, even of human love. That's why I was saying that romantic song, and so many romantic songs 
are based on that kind of image, you know, of all the women in the whole world, you are by far the absolute best there ever is, you know, and but always implied in that is that therefore I too must be something pretty special, right? Because if you're so great and I'm your partner, you know, that must say a lot about me too. But all of that has very little to do with the real power that makes a relationship work. Because what really makes a relationship work is an expansive understanding that all that we're doing takes place, not only in the context of a whole society, but in the context of, of my whole soul evolution, of each one of us. When I was, uh, when David and I were first together and we were going to get married, and I um, had this very um, sort of eager idea to be married, and I realized in my mind that I was over-eager. And I... I could see I was falling into this trap that somehow something would happen to me that I myself didn't actually generate with my own energy. Do you understand how subtle that delusion is? That marriage is a thing. And when it happens, I will then be able to become passive in the context of it. And and, and something will happen to me that isn't already me. And because David and I were living together and so there was not like this big moment when we'd finally leave our parents' home or something like that. The life that we were going to have, we were having. And the thought just came to me in the simplest possible word, words. You're either friends or you're not. You know, And if you're friends, you're friends. Being married, not married, you know, being anything doesn't make any difference. If you're friends, you're friends. And that's all there is to it. And then I had that thought. Suddenly, the picture of, of this incarnation just sort of expanded out, I don't want to say this was more super conscious than it was, it was just more of a, an imagination. But I had this imaginary thought, we lived up at Ananda village then where it was no streetlights, and so on clear summer nights the sky was just, you know, so rich with stars, it was just exquisite to see. And I was looking up at the stars, and I thought of all the incarnations that we live, and all the millions of souls on the planet, and they're just like over here, is two little tiny dots. And I thought, well, that's David and me. You know, and we're just in this great, vast cosmos, and we're just going to kind of spend this time closer to, closer to each other than those two are. And now, to me, that's not small. You know, that, that to me is so much more romantic than trying to contract this little world just be, between the two of us, because through that kind of a thought, um, you can eventually have everything. And that's what we also have to understand, is this uh, uh, project that we're on with each other is really not about how happy we can make each other. This project is about how perfect we can become. You know, And sometimes you get marriages that are really happy, and those are nice. And sometimes you get marriages that are really challenging, and those are also nice. They're just nice in a different way. Because each one of us gets to become bigger than we were. And we learn whatever lessons it is that we're trying to learn. Now, I'm not saying we should stay in situations that are miserable. But I'm saying that what we do with our situations can make a great deal of difference as to how miserable we are. I started uh, thinking with David when I was realizing that I was always wanting him to make me happy, that I just, instead of always thinking, you know, women have this tendency, and I'm certainly one of them, oh, it's two degrees colder, I better put on my sweater. Oh, it's another degree colder. I better button it. Oh, now it's warmed up. I better unbutton it. 
you know, now I better just take it off my shoulders. And now I'm a little bit thirsty, I'll have a little water. And now this isn't quite right, I'll put a little salt on it. You know, just sort of minute adjustments all the time, just trying to make it, like, just so. But I, um, I, instead of always trying to adjust the world around me, the thought is so obvious, that I ask myself, is it really necessary, you know, to make this adjustment, or is this something that I can live with? And I began to really evaluate and advise people in their relationships to think of it in a very different way. You know, what if this person's characteristic is always going to be there? You know, instead of always just sort of focusing in on how you're going to change them and they're going to be different, just ask yourself, and I came up with a phrase I've always loved, which is, is this a marriage buster? You know? I mean, some things are. Some things are marriage busters. They're just beyond your capacity to live with them. But many things are not. It's sort of like my friend's saying, she's in love with me 75% of the time, and that's enough. You know, if this person is always like this, do I really have to spend all this time hammering at them to be different? And what can I do within myself um, that will allow me, you know, just to flow with this? How can I expand to include it? Now, um, everything that happens in our life, and Swami writes about this, and it's probably the most important concept, one of the most important concepts you can have. So Swami talks about how energy always flows in two directions. It either expands or it contracts. And, and life is an ever-changing process of expanding and contraction. You know, the waves go up and the waves go down. The millionaire of today is the pauper of tomorrow. The president of the company is fired and on the street. The stock prices go way up and the stock prices go way down. I heard, it wasn't this cycle, but it was one of the cycles when the stocks went really terrible. And I heard some conversation on the radio of some financial advisor. And people were just, they wanted their money back. And this financial advisor was trying to explain what had happened. And he said, finally, $3 trillion has gone to money heaven, and it's never coming back. (laughs) There you are. (laughs) Never in history has everybody just got richer and 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 richer without suddenly people getting poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer. You know, sometimes it takes hundreds of years. Sometimes it doesn't happen in your lifetime. But nonetheless, it happens. It's just always expansion and always contraction. And you can see it all around you. Right now in our community, the roses are just unbelievable. They're just growing like this, and it's just an abundance everywhere. But time will pass, and all of those roses will begin to shrink. There's so many of them are past their peak, and you know, and they'll all fall down, and then it'll become winter, and it'll just all, it always happens. And yet we think that our lives are just going to be one ever-ascending journey toward perfection. And we don't recognize that everything is expansion and contraction. But Swami writes so perfectly here, When he says, whereas we can't control the world around us, we can learn to control our own inner reactions to everything that happens to us. And and this tendency to expand, to include, or contract, to protect, is one of those very fundamental attitudes that makes the difference between whether or not our relationships really bring us what we want, or gradually we end up small and disappointed. Now, I'm going to take a break. Let's take a ten-minute break. Come back at 10 of 9, and then we'll go on from there. Um, I just, I wanted, if I could interrupt your conversations. Excuse me. Um, 
Uh, I'm not, I, I do a Wednesday night satsang, which some of you all come to, heart to heart, but I'm not going to be doing it tomorrow. I have to go to Southern California. So um, for those of you who are planning to come, don't. Okay, and we'll resume again the following Wednesday. Um, so, are there any, I didn't give anybody a single chance even to peep for that whole time. <laughs> and sometimes I stop and at least sort of in a perfunctory sort of way say, any questions or comments? Okay, let's go on. <laughs> so now that we've paused, questions or comments before we go on? Any thoughts or ideas? Okay. I'm going to spend a few minutes on the concept of contractive and expansive because um, Swami even called the book Expansive Marriage, although when they reissue it, they're going to change it because he's gotten people who think expansive marriage means having more than one partner. (laughs) So I think it's going to be called uh, self-expansion through marriage. (laughs) Um, You know, you kind of write things and then only later do you see that people read things into them you didn't mean. Um, sometimes it's very confusing in the course of our lives to know which way is forward. And it's, it, it isn't always a simple matter because whereas we think of spiritual progress and self-development as being very linear, this is left over from Kali Yuga, that we think things are all going straight lines, that just, you know, you sort of start here and you go there, and everybody, some people are ahead of you and some are behind, and you conquer things and then they're behind you, and just sort of movements like that. But the actual fact is that each one of us individually is sort of, we, we move in and out of balance or on and off center. And we're sort of accelerating in, you might even say, in the speed of our vibration or the clarity of our thought, and we kind of move in and out of of Attunement is really the right word. Attunement with our own higher nature and attunement with um, the vibration of our soul that's trying to come through to us. And so oftentimes, depending on which way you've gone off balance, it depends on which way is forward. Some people who have a tendency to be repressed and not to value their own opinions really need to become more forthright and a little bit argumentative and and a kind of... uh, peppery insistence on your own way for certain people can be a forward movement whereas someone who is very very good at always saying what they want there may not be any continued progress and just always making sure that everyone knows what my needs are so it one of the uh, keys to being able to unravel the sort of uh, confusion of self-development, especially as it gets made more complex when there are more people involved, is just the simple idea of what is expansive to my consciousness or what is contractive to my consciousness. Okay, using the example of being peppery or a little bit too repressed, if your nature is to be always very placid, but that um, placid nature is not really based on an expansive courage but just a fear of making waves or, or an habitual dullness of mind that doesn't even engage enough to even know what it is that is, is uh, your desire in that moment. It's not expansive for you to just keep on being placid, even though you might sort of look at it and say, well, I'm so harmonious and I'm so nice, right? 
But you might not really be harmonious and nice. You may actually just be really frozen. So expansive for you may be to have opinions, even to assert those opinions, even to insist on those opinions. In certain circumstances, might be a more expansive thing for you to do because you feel your consciousness and your sense of possibilities getting bigger. Now, another person, again, who has that one down, you know, has no problem just letting the world know what they want and letting you know what they want and you and you and you and always just like being really current about what my needs are. It's not really expansive to just keep on doing that. Expansive for you is to be able to come to a greater sense of inner peace, a greater sense of other people's realities. You might be so good at your own that there's just not a lot of place in your world for anybody else's. And so you realize all the people in your world have receded to the walls. You know, they're just, they're all sort of smashed up here because you're so busy being yourself that there's no, your reality doesn't include theirs anymore. So, so for you, such a, the response, an expansive response is when somebody does something that you want to react to, instead you expand to include what they need, what's going to help them, what's really going to bring harmony. Now, the whole purpose of interacting with people is always to keep expanding our consciousness till we become infinite. And the great art of long-lasting, close relationships is to, is to both stay awake enough yourself and to stay open enough to each other that you don't just sort of hit the wall and stop there. So Ami remarks, I think, elsewhere in this book, just how many couples just sort of freeze. And so often, you know, uh, men retreat into silence. And you'll just sort of see the situation where she's just talking away and he's... Hmm. I, I even laughed once. It was Sometimes it starts even earlier. There was a, an engagement card that I saw. It was so perfect for someone. I didn't buy it, but I told them about it, and he agreed it was perfect. It said, well, I guess you two are busy planning your wedding right now. And then you open it up, and it says, well, or one of you is planning, and the other one is saying, whatever. <laughs> you know, just the sort of stereotypical sort of mood. And there's nothing harm, harmful in that inherently. People just have different things that are important to them. But if, if, if one can get in the habit of recognizing that whatever situation you're in, you always have a choice as to respond more expansively or more contractively to it. And one of the most tempting contractions that we come into is this thought form that because I might get hurt, I really need to close up and protect myself a little bit. And it's a very difficult inclination, and that's one of the things that happens often to long marriages, why they're not all... Why they're not always so inspiring, nor such a victory, that people have managed to live together, but they've managed to live together not by becoming more and more inclusive, but just by creating a smaller and smaller circle around themselves. I recall, and some of you have heard this story, but it's so instructive, I will share it again. When I first married David, I had been single. In fact, I'd been living in the monastery for about 10 years almost, not quite. And I had spent a lot of time, I'd been married before, I did not plan to marry again. I had no interest inherently in marriage. I had a great interest when I met David and David. But it wasn't a, a, a marriage, and it wasn't an idea. It was a person. So I'd spent a lot of time reflecting on all the things that had happened to me before when I was married and all the things I didn't want to have happen again. And one of them was this inclination toward 
feminine emotions, which can be exceedingly impressive. And uh, I sort of went through this experience in the first year that we lived together of doing one of those things that women are better at than men, but men can also do them, which is where you just all by yourself create an emotional crisis. I mean, when David says things are fine until you get upset, usually I'm feeding off of something he's doing in some way. This was one of those where nothing happened. I, I literally sat on the couch. David lived his life around me, and in a matter of a couple of hours, I was having a, a, an emotional experience. Just, you know, just, I don't know what. I don't even remember now, but it was very real. Absurd as it seems in retrospect, it really happened. You know, you just start mulling over things, you start worrying about things, and pretty soon there I was so upset about him, you know, and he, poor man, you know. I remember once David, some man came over, and he was having such a horrible time in his relationship, and we lived in this big dome at that time, so David could appear to be separate talking to this man, but actually I was just up in the bedroom loft, and I could hear it, and I listened. This poor man described what, even to me, sounded like a horrific situation. And after he told his whole story, David said, well, that's women. (laughs) I said to him once, how much time do you spend just like working around my moods and emotions? He just looked at me so sweetly and said, you don't want to know. But of course, that's why that's why men marry women because you know they just like they need that they need to have somebody just like showing them there's another way to be. It's a good balance, I think. <laughs> and I, you know, and women have to see this fact that you know the sun just comes up and hangs around for a while and goes down and just doesn't freak out every time a gnat flies across it. It's just, <laughs> it's just the way things are, and it's just very steadying. You just sort of see. But you're not all agitated about it. Mm-hmm, just a nap. It'll go. Um, but I had this experience again where I was, I was very upset and I really hurt. And it was a new kind of hurt because I had been on my own for many years and very happy on my own. And all of a sudden I had gotten engaged with someone and so all of a sudden everything they did impacted my world. And I did not like that at all. And so I started like thinking, this, this, is, this will not do. And as it happened, we were painting some of the outdoor furniture at that time with this polyurethane. And it was this clear plastic, and you painted it over the wood. You could still see the wood underneath it, but it was a little protected. So I kind of just mentally dipped my little brush and kind of started painting with polyurethane. You know, I know know what the answer here is. I'll just harden up a little. You know, I'm too sensitive, too vulnerable. Favorite word, too vulnerable. But I thought, you know, we don't even have a year together. And if I, every time something difficult happens, I deal with it by just, you know, just one little brush of polyurethane, that's all. Just cover up my heart, it's a little too soft. Just cover it up a little, just a little harder. You know, it'll be fine. But you could see it, one, two, three, four, five, six, even that paint, you know, you gradually build up a really thick shell. I thought, where will this go? So I thought, well, that's not a solution. But I also thought to myself, this is really not a good system either because I am too tender-hearted. I can't just sort of always be living in these upsets. I, I can't handle it. It doesn't work for me. So I thought, what is it that is really bothering me? And I thought, well, I, I, I really, you know, this word trust is a really big word and people use it a lot. You know, you want somebody you can trust and you have to learn to trust people. And it's a true word, but it's a bit overused because... 
Who is trustworthy? I mean, are you yourself completely trustworthy? Think about it. Think about how many times from this morning till tonight you've made resolutions that you didn't keep. You know, how many things you said that you just weren't going to say. And then you said them. Somebody asked a question of me the other day. And it's just like, I don't, there was no moment in between from when the question was asked and my answer came out. And my answer was the wrong answer. And it was just afterwards I thought, why do I do that? Why, why can't we be who we're trying to be? So we try to get people to promise us that they will be what they're trying to be. But who can make such a promise? Right? We can aspire to it. We can do our sincere best. But you can't really promise more than you are. And if you do, if you make that promise, it's at your peril. But nonetheless, I wanted to be open, but I could see that he was going to be himself. And you even think, which is fair to think, not that one expects it, things happen. You know, people change. New karmic situations arise. People get hit by automobiles and turn into paraplegics. You know, things happen that that just completely change the context of your life. Nobody can promise you that it will always be the way they're going to promise it. So I thought, but I but I have a fundamental trust, trusting nature, and to trust is expansive. So I asked myself profoundly, what is it that I really want to trust? And so I thought, just in very simple terms, I trust God. You know, I trust that there is a benign presence a benign, loving presence that is in charge of my life. Now, I hope to heaven all of you can feel that same way. You know, that's a truth for me, that I've, it's a hard-fought battle that I can say, there is a divine mother and she is taking care of me, and I trust her to bring me what I need. Now, that's a very different thing than trusting her not to hurt me, right? But I trust her to bring me what I need. And I also recognize that the more you enter into life with full enthusiasm and full commitment and full courage, the more that God can also reach you. And when you're always holding back and hedging your bets and not being sure, and maybe I'll do it and maybe I won't and I'll test the water, but then I won't, you know, just all those kinds of energies, nothing much ever happens. You have to just open yourself and get into it. When I was 18 years old, I went to Stanford University, my one great attempt at higher education, which lasted one year. I'm not much of a institutional person. But we were 18. We were all newly away from home. All the freshmen were there together. And it was like big social time. We were all going to meet each other and everything like that. It was just almost unbearable. It was a state of complete gridlock is what happened. Every person was standing like that. And like, if I reach out and am rejected, I won't be able to handle it. So I'll just wait. And so we were all just like all of us, you know. We were just kind of all walking around like this. <laughs> Hello, I'm so glad to meet you. You know, it's just like... <laughs> and I just thought, you know, if somebody moves, maybe the whole system can move. So I made a decision, not that I felt very confident, but I thought if I pretend that I have confidence and I don't care, you know, something can happen. And it was a very important moment in my life because I just did. I just like acted as if I wasn't afraid. And in, in two days, I made a number of friends that have several which have been my friends forever. You know, I met this one woman who's my lifelong friend, just bingo like that. And it was only because all of a sudden I just entered into it. 
as if I wasn't afraid. Now, anybody in your life who approaches you with that kind of openness, you always respond, don't you? And good heavens, in your most intimate relationships, that's the one thing you really want. But you can't make the condition of that that this person will then conform to what you want. So you enter into it completely because God will do with you whatever he wants to do. Right? And so I looked at David and I said, you know, don't box him in. Don't make him promise, even silently in your own mind, so that later you'll feel betrayed. You know? Just let him be. Take it. Take life as it's given to you. If this man is going to be your husband, then just take him as he is. Give yourself to it 100%. Just rip off all the protection. Not because you won't be hurt, but because God will take care of you if you love. What have we got to lose? That's the expansive attitude. And and many times through the years, 20 years, I've had to just go back to that again. What am I really trusting in this relationship? You know, he can't. He's a wonderful man. I mean, I, I think the world of him. But, you know, he's not God realized. So naturally, he just kind of fumbles around just like me. Oh, what a strange, shocking surprise. This one woman at Ananda Village had been told once that in order to magnetize the right spouse to her, you need to to get really clear on your image. So she sat down and she wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. She just wrote pages and pages of exactly who she wanted, you know. It was going to be crystal clear. And for some reason, she was. She showed it to Swamiji. She was so confused that she thought he would be interested. So she showed it to him. <laughs> and he, being so kind, just sort of read it. And then he, he, he could tell that this was not going in the right direction. And he sort of just so sweetly said to her, My dear, you want Jesus Christ for a husband. <laughs> and then he just sort of very sweetly took her hand and said, And Jesus wouldn't marry you. <laughs> Fortunately, she has a great sense of humor, and she immediately just knew exactly what he was saying. And then again, he said very kindly, you want someone closer to your own level. (laughs) And that's generally speaking what we get. And that's generally speaking why we're so mad about it. (laughs) Because we thought we were going to get a free ride. You know, we were going to find the right person and then we wouldn't have to try so hard anymore, right? So you just have to trust that this is it. There's a, there is a wonderful freedom that comes when you just really know that. You know, I love the word mate. Mate is a word I've gotten really, I've gotten to really like. Because, you know, you just like, it would be awfully nice if you had a better wife or a more suitable husband, but you don't. This is it. And there's, I, we, we, we travel to India often and, Everybody's so fascinated by the arranged marriages. And, and still, sometimes I, I can really tune into it. And still, you're just talking to people who are just like you. And they married someone they didn't know. You just you can't imagine it. We were with a, an Indian family just here in town recently. And, you know, she was saying that her cousin told her about this man. And so she went and met him. And she saw him for about 10 minutes and said, oh, he'll do. <laughs> right there. They're married. They have children. They're wonderful, happy. He'll do. He just laughed. He said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And her mother, who was also there, said, even I said, dear, are you sure? You know? (laughs) But she herself, of an older generation, didn't even see her husband's face till after they were married. I mean, he didn't see her face. She had this veil on, you know. 
They're there, they're all married. Oh, look what I got. You know, we just... It makes us crazy. It makes us crazy to think about it. But one of my Indian friends, who is one of the most westernized Indians I know, who, to be fair, did, did choose his own wife. But uh, he said, look, God knows who your wife, who my wife is, he said. Whether I pick her myself or my mother brings her home, what difference does it make? Isn't that just such a simple way to think about it? We're not. That's not our style. But I, but still, we think we're in charge of all this. You know, we think that it was our doing that we happened to answer that ad or be in that bookstore or go to dinner at our cousin's house and meet my cousin's brother's sister's brother-in-law, you know, that sort of thing. It's just, it's, it's all Divine Mother just running it, running the show. And, you know, our way is much more self-oriented, and it's not bad. It's not so great, but it's not so bad either. It's just the way we are. But I just love that. God knows. And when we find ourselves thinking that it's everybody else's fault, God knows. You know, no, nothing is here to make me happy. It's all just here to make me bigger. And if I can just use this experience to get more expansive, then it all becomes a wonderful, joyful experience, because how can you lose? No, now sometimes you expand right out of a relationship, but nonetheless, as long as you're thinking in those in those terms, um, you're always moving forward in the right way, and Divine Mother will take care of you. Now, any comments or questions, or are we done for tonight? We're done for tonight. Okay. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>